back when I was living and working in, in Tokyo, Japan, I had a friend who had an older sister who was in a dating relationship with a guy. And this dating relationship was great, so it seemed. Uh, they had a lot of chemistry, they were attractive, they had fun together. So once I, I asked my friend, is your sister and her boyfriend thinking about getting married one day? My friend replied, yeah, they are, but first my sister is going to hire someone to do a background check on the guy. <laughs> Actually, a company to do a background check. She wants to find out about his bloodline, his ancestral history. And so some years later, when I was thinking about proposing to Sakiko, who was born and raised in Japan, the thought went through my mind, will she hire a company to do a background check on me? Will she check out my bloodline, my ancestral record, and might something really embarrassing come up that would put an end to this potential marriage? When you are born into a traditional society, the family that you come from, your family history, your family tree, really does matter. Right now, we're in a sermon series on how various people are encountering Jesus and how they're being changed by him and how when we meet Jesus, we can also experience this transformation. Today, we're going to be looking at how Jesus encounters a man who is very well-born. He comes from a so-called great family. He is also a high achiever. His name is Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's an expert in the law. And we read in John chapter 3 that Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night, probably because Nicodemus is self-conscious about being seen with Jesus. He's probably a little afraid about being cited with Jesus by his fellow Pharisees who are very well educated, and maybe Nicodemus doesn't want to see them um, seeing, watching him with this person, Jesus, who has no formal education in all likelihood because he was raised by a carpenter. Nicodemus knows that the religious elite are generally against Jesus because of what he's been doing and saying. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night under the cover of night because he's self-conscious, because he's fearful. And yet he still comes because despite his being so well-born and so accomplished, he feels like something is missing in his heart. He feels restless. And he knows that Jesus has turned water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And he also has heard Jesus' teachings and has seen signs coming through Jesus. He knows Jesus is no ordinary person. And so he, he comes to him. And in John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, we read these words. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Spirit of God, speak to us through this passage, we pray, as we eavesdrop on this crucial conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. 
And by your work within us, enable us to experience this new birth so that we might see, so that we might enter the kingdom of God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jesus and Nicodemus live in a world, a traditional world, where the family that you come from is very important. Your family line really matters. In this world, people believe that you are part of God's family if you can trace your lineage all the way back to Abraham, which Nicodemus can do. Nicodemus is also born into a so-called quote, good family, probably wealthy. There's some evidence that he is from an aristocratic background. He's also very highly accomplished. And yet Jesus says to him, that's not enough, Nicodemus. It's not enough for you to really know God, to enter into the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. For that to happen, he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Literally, the words are, you must be born from above. That expression has a lot of baggage in our culture. We'll unpack more of what that means a little later. But when Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, Nicodemus would not have heard that as a compliment. I want you to imagine that you are applying for a job and you're turned down. And afterwards, in a kind of follow-up interview, you ask this employer, if I were to reapply for this job one day, is there anything that I could do to make myself more competitive? Could I get some more experience? Uh, could I hone my skills in a particular field? And if the employer were to look at you and say, for us to ever hire you, you would need to be reborn as a completely new person. <laughs> that would not be a compliment. <laughs> probably would be rather insulting or discouraging. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, this person who's been born into a really good family, who's accomplished so much, in order for you to really know God, you must be born again or born from above. Nicodemus is not only well-born, but as I've mentioned, he's also highly accomplished. He is a Pharisee. Now, in our world, if you describe someone as a Pharisee, that is a term of insult, of derision. When someone is called a Pharisee, we think of someone who is likely very self-righteous, narrow-minded, and judgmental. But in Jesus' first century world, Pharisees were highly respected. They were the experts in the law in a society that, by and large, revered the law. Nicodemus is not only a Pharisee, he is also a member of the Jewish ruling council, which means he is part of the high court. He is part of a select group of 70 people who have jurisdiction over every single Jewish person on earth. So Nicodemus is in a power role. And not only that, in verse 10, Jesus calls Nicodemus Israel's teacher, an expression which suggests that Nicodemus was Israel's greatest teacher of scripture or one of the nation's greatest teachers. So he's very accomplished, very well born, and yet Jesus says to him, it's not enough if you really want to know God, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again or born from above. In our society, most of us 
are not looking to our family history, to our ancestral line as a way to validate our worth or to give us a sense of meaning and satisfaction. But a lot of us are looking to our accomplishments or something that we might do in the future, some achievement to make us feel like we are worthy, like we are enough, to bring us a sense of meaning and satisfaction. Now, some of us, as was probably the case with Nicodemus, are seeking to become or to be a good person as, as a way to somehow validate our worth. Now, wanting to be a good person moral person is a noble ambition. But is this a good path for us to experience self-assurance or acceptance with God? Let's go with the latter first. The Bible teaches that even our good deeds, our righteous acts, in the presence of a perfect, holy God, are like filthy rags. We can never be good enough to attain to God's standard. And so that's why we need God's grace and mercy and forgiveness to be in relationship with him. But let's say that we pursue becoming a good person as a path for us to see ourselves as worthy in our own eyes. Is that a good path to take? You know, the more that we put our goodness, our morality the center of our lives as the most important priority of our existence, the more we will realize how we don't meet our own standards, how we are inconsistent, and how we can live hypocritically. This is not a promising path for us when it comes to establishing our worth or finding lasting satisfaction. Many people in our society, I would put myself in this category as well, are looking to some kind of achievement in art, in athletics, in our professional lives to help us feel that we are worthy, that our lives are valid, to find meaning and satisfaction. But is this a good path? Is this a wise path? I want you to imagine for a moment that your name is Gonzalo Montiel. You're from Argentina and you're representing your country in the World Cup final. The game ends up in a tie, and so you go into the penalty kicks. When it's your turn, you step forward and you drill the ball into the left-hand side of the net, securing the World Cup for your country, for Argentina. How do you feel? Well, you will feel waves of electricity washing over your body. You will feel immense pleasure as dopamine explodes in your brain. But unfortunately, those feelings will not last. They will subside quickly because your brain will recognize that this chemical has entered and it will counteract that chemical to try and reestablish balance and equilibrium. And so you'll never be able to get those first feelings back. 
really great to have Joel and is it Samuel here. We just love having your family here from South Africa, your dad, your mom, your little sister, Chloe. Have you ever seen a North American football game before? No, they're shaking their heads. Okay. All right. There's a big game this afternoon. Um, just FYI. Uh, let's imagine for a moment that either the Philadelphia Eagles, one of the teams, or the Kansas City Chiefs needs an extra player, and they ask one of you boys or one of you to suit up. Miracle of miracles. So you're suited up. And then you end up scoring the winning touchdown or kicking the winning field goal in the game. How will you feel? Again, you will feel this immense pleasure as dopamine is exploding in your brain, but unfortunately, that feeling cannot last very long. It will subside quickly because your brain will counteract that chemical for it to achieve or reachieve balance and equilibrium. And so it will be impossible to get those first feelings back. You know, the irony is that the few among us who actually reach or exceed our life dreams are often the most disappointed among us because we're no longer, or you're no longer, living with an illusion, a false hope that this can satisfy. When I was in high school, I liked playing tennis. I occasionally watched the tournament on TV, on rare occasions, went to a tournament. And I was sort of loosely following a young player from Germany named Boris Becker, who had won Wimbledon at a young age. And this is what Becker said about his achievements as a tennis player. I had won Wimbledon twice, once as the youngest player, which was at age 17. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. It is the old song of the movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they are so unhappy. I had no inner peace. And when we look to some kind of achievement or competence to validate our worth or to give us a sense of satisfaction, these things will fail us. As David Foster Wallace said in his rightly famous and oft-quoted commencement speech at Kenyon College, worship money and things. If they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing up, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. David Foster Wallace is saying, look, if you put money, achievement, your attractiveness, your popularity at the center of your existence, if you look to these things to validate you, to give you a sense of satisfaction, they will fail you. And they will also fail to lift you into a life with God. Jesus says to Nicodemus, a man who is very well born from a great family and is a high achiever, these things aren't enough for you to really know God. In order for you to enter the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, you must be born from above. You must be born again. 
phrase here is the same one James uses in a latter part of the Bible. When James talks about a wisdom that we need from above, Jesus says you need to be born from above, born of God. Jesus gives us some teaching on what this means. He says in verse 5, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. What does water refer to often in the Bible? Water is usually used as a symbol for cleansing and for purifying. So in Ezekiel chapter 36, God says to the prophet, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your idols and all your impurities. Jesus says you must be born of water and of spirit. Why combine the two images? It's because when we are cleansed by the water of God that we are prepared to more fully serve as a container for God's life-transforming spirit. Verse 8, Jesus says, The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So Jesus here is talking about the wind of the Spirit. We don't know where it comes from, where it's going. It's mysterious. We can't see it. And yet, it has a powerful effect. As Jesus talks about the wind of the Spirit, it may be that he has in mind here Ezekiel chapter 37, where God takes the prophet Ezekiel to a valley that's filled with dry human bones. The bones of human beings, skeletons. It must have been sort of an eerie experience for Ezekiel. And then God looks at the prophet, points at the bones and says, can these bones live again? Ezekiel answers very wisely, only you would know, God. <laughs> Only you would know. Wise answer. And then Ezekiel hears this, this great wind beginning to blow. And the breath of God begins to blow upon these human skeletons, these bones that begin to rattle and hum. They begin to snap together. Flesh appears on these bones. They become bodies. And then according to the scriptures, the winds of God blow from the four corners of the earth onto these bodies and they become living beings, living human beings, new creations. And the scripture teaches that when the Spirit of God blows upon us, we can become new human beings. You know, we can't see the wind, but we can see the effects of the wind. If you were here in our city a couple of months ago, you would have remembered in all likelihood we had some strong winds blowing through Vancouver. Winds that, that tore off a significant branch of a tree in front of our home. Winds that felled a fairly large tree several blocks from our home in front of Edith Cavell Elementary School. The tree toppled over, the roots pushed up the sidewalk, broke the sidewalk. We cannot see the wind, but we can see the effects of the wind. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, afraid, the first time. And Jesus says, you must be born again. Was Nicodemus ever actually born again, born of God, born from above? Well, we see evidence that he was. We don't know where and when, but we see evidence of change. So, for example, a little bit later in the Gospel of John, Nicodemus, this Pharisee, is talking to some of his fellow Pharisees. They are criticizing and condemning Jesus. 
And Nicodemus steps forward and says, can we declare a man guilty before giving him a fair hearing? Remember, Nicodemus had been so timid before going to Jesus at night, and now he is standing up for Jesus. And these Pharisees' uh, colleagues look at him and, and say, uh, do you want to become one of his followers too? But we have even stronger evidence that a significant change has occurred for Nicodemus at the very end of the Gospel of John. Jesus has been crucified. He's died. And during this time, all of his disciples have fled. They've gone into hiding because they don't want to associate with someone who was nailed to a cross because that person, that Jesus, would have been seen as a criminal because of his execution. Nicodemus, who had been so timid before, boldly goes to the Roman authorities and asks them, can I and Joseph of Arimathea, who was also a wealthy and successful man, take Jesus' body so that we can clean it, so that we can prepare it with spices, so that we can wrap it in linen cloths for its burial? An incredibly bold move on Nicodemus's part to ask for the body of someone who was seen as a criminal to associate himself with such a person. And not only that, Nicodemus is willing to clean Jesus's blood-caked body. This was a task so lowly that only a slave or a woman would stoop to do it in their world. And so we see that Nicodemus has become this truly bold and courageous person, and he has become this very humble person, willing to serve in the most lowly of manners. When the Spirit of God comes upon us, we may not be able to see it with our eyes, but we can see the effects of it. I think someone like Chuck Colson, Chuck Colson served as special counsel to President Richard Nixon. Chuck Colson once boasted, I would run my own grandmother over. I would kill my own grandmother to get President Nixon re-elected as President of the United States. It's no wonder Colson was nicknamed the Hatchet Man. Colson was indicted. He was declared guilty for his role in the Watergate scandal, went to prison, and in prison had a powerful encounter with God, in part by reading C.S. Lewis's classic, Mere Christianity. And he was powerfully transformed such that he would go on to devote the rest of his life to ensuring that prisoners received relational and spiritual nourishment. Chuck Olson entitled his autobiography, his memoir, Born Again. I had the privilege of getting to know Chuck some years later, and I could see that while he was still a very strong person, he was also a truly compassionate one. When I doubt the efficacy of the Spirit's work in our lives, I think of someone like Chuck. I even might think of my own life. I've shared some of my story with you before. When I was in high school, I hated reading. I wasn't interested at all in books. I went to a high school where it was considered uncool to be interested in reading, which suited me just perfectly, because I was utterly uninterested. I meet God, I meet Jesus. And I have this seemingly unexpected, unexplainable hunger to read God's Word. And I remember reading 1 John near the end of the Bible. And it's like the words are leaping out of the pages and landing into my heart. And I can only explain that 
It's the work of God in me. I don't experience God's word with the same intensity, but the word still speaks to me. When I was in high school, I also was taking some martial arts. I had the very bad habit of practicing my moves on fellow students. <laughs> without their consent, without any you know, liability waiver form. I also had the very bad habit of making up unflattering nicknames for my classmates. Bad habit. But I meet Jesus, as I said, and this sounds very patronizing. I know I, there's probably a better way to put it, but I have this new willingness, this new wantingness, if that's a word, this new desire to connect with people that are on the lower rungs of the social caste in our high school, that are lower on the social caste. And I can only explain that new desire to be inclusive and loving to the Spirit of God because it certainly wasn't originating inside me. Look at your own life for a moment. Are there any signs that the wind of the Spirit has blown over your soul? Have you become more humble like Nicodemus? Or more bold, more courageous? Or like Chuck, have you become more inclusive, more loving? Do you have a hunger, a new hunger to hear from God through Scripture or to worship God? to share the love of God as you are given opportunity to do it gently and winsomely. If there are no signs that the wind of the Spirit has blown over your life, you might want to check your birth certificate and to determine whether or not you really are a citizen of the kingdom of God, of the kingdom of heaven. Because if so, there will likely be some kind of evidence, some kind of sign. Now, can you do something to foster the likelihood of you entering into the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven to be born from above. We can't manufacture it. It's a miracle. But can we do something to foster this work? If you've ever sailed, you know that you can't create wind, but you can put a boat into the water and you can raise a sail and you can make yourself receptive to the wind. And so it is with God. There's something that we can do, a couple things we can do to make ourselves receptive to the winds of God's spirit. In verse 14, Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus here is referring to a different place in Scripture, a different place in Israel's history, where Moses was leading God's people through the desert, through the wilderness. They were rebelling against God, disobeying God, and these poisonous snakes appeared, and the snakes were biting people, and they were dying. And so the people said to Moses, pray for us, pray for us. And Moses prays to God, and God tells Moses, take a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and tell everyone to look at this serpent, and if they do, they will be cured, they will be saved. And the people who were bitten, in many cases, looked to the bronze serpent, and each one who did was cured, they were delivered, they were saved. And Jesus says, and so it will be with me. One day I will be lifted up on a pole, on a cross. And if you look to me, if you turn to me, you will be healed, you will be saved. You will have eternal life. And then in the most famous verse of all scripture, Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, me, that whosoever believes in him, whosoever trusts in him, shall not perish 
but shall have everlasting life. That is God's life now and God's life in the world to come. So we can turn to Jesus and look to Jesus and receive eternal life. Is there anything else that we can do? We can pursue God through the waters of baptism. In verse 5, Jesus says, No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Some of the leading commentators, including Frederick Dale Bruner, believes that this allusion to water in verse 5 is pointing to baptism. I don't know that that's necessarily the case. But I agree with these commentators that there is a strong link between being baptized and experiencing the gift of the Spirit. No one walked more closely than Jesus as a human... No one walked more closely to God than Jesus as a human being. But even Jesus pursued the waters of baptism, not because he needed his sins forgiven, but because he wanted to be really immersed in the reality of God. As he comes up out of the waters of baptism, the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. How? In the form of a dove. So even Jesus gets a fresh, a fresh visitation of the Spirit through his baptism. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus' disciple Peter preaches a powerful sermon to people who are wanting to get right with God. And Peter says, repent every one of you and be baptized in the name of Christ. Repent means turn to God, turn from your sins to God. Be baptized in the name of Christ and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I remember some years ago, behind this screen, someone in our community stood in the baptismal tank and was baptized. And afterwards she told me, I waited 10 years for my baptism. And when I was baptized today, I felt the Holy Spirit come upon me in a powerful new way. Why did I wait so long? If you've never been baptized and you have no good reason not to be baptized, consider being baptized even this coming Easter Sunday, April 9th. If you're interested in exploring that further, you can contact our colleague, Pastor Sharon, and her contact info is, is on the screen. You can email Sharon, regular spelling, S-H-A-R-O-N, period, D as in Delta, and then at, tenth, spelled out, T-E-N-T-H dot C-A. If you're interested in exploring the possibility of baptism, please contact her, and you can find out about this baptism class, this prep class that begins on March the 19th. March the 19th. You know, whether we come from a past that has some corruption, like Chuck Colson, or whether we are seen as a decent, respectable person like Nicodemus, every one of us, we're all sinners. As David Foster Wallace said, our default mode is to place at the center of our existence something like our morality or an achievement, our attractiveness, money, some kind of competence. But all of these things will fail to validate our worth. None of these things will bring us lasting satisfaction. None of these things can lift us up to a life with God. And so Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, turn to me, trust me, entrust your life to me. And I will birth new life in you. Let's pray together.
Jesus says in these famous words, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, me, so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is God's life now and God's life in a world to come. And if you are uncertain that you are part of God's kingdom, you can turn to Jesus and say, I don't understand it all, but forgive my sins, cleanse me, wash me, fill me with your spirit and birth new life in me. I believe in you. And if you know Jesus, you can say, Jesus, release your spirit in me in a fresh, new and powerful way. And perhaps later today, you would meditate again on the Gospel of John chapter 3 about this new life. And if you've never been baptized, perhaps you would prayerfully consider following Jesus through the waters of baptism so that you might know life in all its fullness. May it be so for you. May you know God's life in all its fullness. May you be born and reborn and reborn from above. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.